0: Welcome, everybody, to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. And you have happened upon a podcast, hopefully subscribe to a podcast, that deals in Crucible experiences, those are those moments in life that really can change the trajectory of your life. They can be painful. They often are quite painful. They can be failures. They can be setbacks. But what they have in common is they are things that can kind of knock us off balance a little bit and that we have to recover from. And focusing on Crucible experiences here at Beyond the Crucible is the title of the podcast, It's to help you, the listener, get beyond the Crucible. Many times we do that by interviewing guests who've had powerful crucible experiences themselves and have bounced back from those experiences to live a life of significance. And today we have a slightly different, a slightly more in-depth guest that we will tell you about in just a minute. But first, I want to welcome the architect of crucible leadership and the host of the show, Warwick Fairfax. Warwick, I know that you are personally excited about our guest today. Absolutely,
1: uh, Gary. Uh, very excited to have Nancy here and should be a fantastic discussion.
0: The Nancy to whom Warwick referred is Nancy Kane, a historian at the Harvard Business School, where she holds the James E. Robeson Chair of Business Administration. Kane's research focuses on crisis leadership and how leaders and their teams rise to the challenges of high stakes situations. Her recent book, Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times, spotlights how five of history's greatest leaders successfully navigated crises and what we can each learn from their experiences.
1: Well, thank you. So, uh, Nancy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You know, I love what you do in focusing on leadership and in particular how organizational leaders today can learn from some of the great leaders in history. And you have this remarkable book, Forged in Crisis, in which you have five very different leaders with five different stories, but some commonalities in how they approach leadership from within and then without. So, yeah, I love that you teach this and you're teaching it to MBA students at Harvard Business School. So, yeah, as obviously we discussed, I went there in the 80s and have very fond memories of the class discussion. I also have an abiding interest in history. My dad and I, who you know, grew up in a large family media business, uh, one of the ways we communicated was through history. So I found this book fascinating. So, Nancy, tell me, before we get into the book, tell me a little bit about yourself and what led you to write this book? Because I know you have some personal history that kind of led to this.
2: So I'm, you know, I was, I'm from a middle class family in the Middle West of America. And I went to Stanford as undergraduate, and then went to Harvard and just never left, got a PhD and a master's, a couple of master's, and then ended up at the Harvard Business School in my very late 20s. And as we know, knowing how way leads on to way, I found myself recently tenured. This is now about, let's see, 16 years ago. And just recently tenured, very difficult journey, very important bridge for academics to cross over into lifelong job security and, you know, great academic possibility in terms of what you do. And then, Two things. First thing is, I was writing a case, a Harvard Business School case. We teach in these units of analysis, a strange product called the Harvard Business School case, which is a real life piece of action, not usually a history case, but I'm a historian, so I write history cases that we then teach to MBAs and executives as a way of, you know, drawing out lessons or insights or watch outs or things that they can take unto themselves, absorb in order to make better decisions. And I was writing a case about Ernest Shackleton, and I was so caught up in this story and how this person, you know, just raised the level of his game so extraordinarily and so consistently over these two years that these men, he and his team, were stranded on the ice in the second decade of the 20th century. And, And then... In the middle of that, and here's get, really gets the root of your question, Gary, <laughs> my life started falling apart very quickly and in very large, as Sylvia Plath would say, hunky blocks. Mm. In mid-2002, my father, who was 72 and spry and energetic, dropped dead my mother who had always been you know someone prone to depression just kind of collapsed inward like a black hole in terms of her own sense of the world and her sense of her place in it and then not many months less than a couple of seasons after my father died and my mother's life was turned inside out and i and my sister with it trying to care for her and my brother and my husband who i'd been married to for just about 15 years one day said i don't love you anymore i'm leaving mm-hmm. I have a lawyer and we're going to get all your Harvard retirement and all the money that you made because I was the only one who had worked full-time during our marriage. And that those floorboards caving in under me were even harder than my father's because I loved him so much. And I was so surprised and I lost a lot of weight. I kept on teaching at the Harvard business school and my students were talking about making bets on how much weight I had lost week by week. And they're calling me the disappearing professor Kane, And then not long after that, same, again, just a couple of seasons, I was diagnosed with precancerous conditions. And not long after that, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, even though I had no risk factors. In the middle of this, there's this torturous divorce going on because I don't have any money other than my Harvard retirement, and I'm trying to hold on to it in a no-fault divorce state. And then I got cancer again. And that was all of that happened. Most of it happened in the span of three years. All of it happened in the span of about five. And I lost all in the end no and I lost most of my money and then I had to figure out what to do. And my career at the Harvard business school, which had this administrative upward trajectory, I was interested in administration. I wanted to be a contributor and a leader at the school mm. that immediately ended because I was sick and you know, cancer. I was, that's serious. Mm. Like my whole life was completely transformed. And I went through just astounding kind of self questioning and Grief and self flagellation, and all, and you know, the constant asking why, which is not the right question, but I didn't know that at the time. And in the midst of all this, now to answer the question, this is all important though. In the midst of the early parts of the crisis, right after my ex husband had walked out, I couldn't sleep. Everyone listening to this podcast who's endured a crucible moment knows what I'm talking about. And so I would go to sleep and wake up at 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. Well, there's not much on television, you can't really vacuum at 2 a.m. And one night in the midst of the existential wanderings I was doing metaphorically, I picked up a book of Lincoln's writings, a modern library edition of Lincoln's writings. I never read much Lincoln. I was trained as a European historian. And I started reading a work at the very back of the book. So this would be the second inaugural, you know, and that's one speech after that and some memos and some letters and reading backwards into time. So, Uh and the more I read the more I realized, and this took about three days. I'm reading a couple hours each night. I remember sitting right. my dogs are my Spaniels are on the bed, and I said, You think you have problems, Miss Nancy? Mr. Lincoln had it a lot worse. Right. And that was the beginning. So my quest, which was I couldn't see it at the time, was much more than historical, it was personal, was to find lighthouses, examples of individuals that had, had just soul crushing calamity crucibles. Mm-hmm. And then try and understand how they not only navigated through these extraordinary storms. They're extraordinary. They're inside and then they're out, but right. there's some inside. But the most powerful ones, the ones that involve the most suffering and the most change, are inside. And I wanted to understand how these people not only navigated the storms, but then in the process got better. And so that is where forged in crisis, forged in crisis, came
1: from. Wow. wow. So as you're doing this, it. I mean, obviously, you're a historian, but was part of it, like I'm going through this massive crisis, any one of these would derail many people, a lot of it was, or most of it was unfair, whether it's health, husband, father, was part of you, were you curious, how did these great leaders get through it? Because A, I would like from an academic point of view to know, but B, maybe that could help me too. Was there sort of a dual purpose behind the whole analysis and book?
2: Completely, completely, and I don't think I really recognized the personal so obviously. Mm-hmm. I had been at the Harvard Business School then for what I don't know, 12 13 years. I'm a very serious historian. I do my homework. Mm-hmm. I cut my teeth doing serious archival work on my mm-hmm. previous two, three books. So I, I knew how to do the detective work, and I was mm-hmm. just fascinated historically that people hadn't answered, You'd been interested in these questions. I mean. No one had asked, like, what was Shackleton's interior life like on the ice when the ship goes down? Well, no one had asked, how did Lincoln really manage this internally when his personal life was falling apart and he's at the center of the Civil War storm? And then I started looking for other people like this and the same kind of questions. And this great personal, again, largely Mm -hmm. unseen at the time, personal fuel helping me move forward. So I was extra conscientious as a historian and as someone who was becoming so interested in leadership about doing my homework because I was feeding off of what I was learning.
1: Wow. So you had a powerful motivation. And this is, again, probably blindingly always. But as you were researching it and thinking about these great leaders, it probably took your mind off what you were going through and what for most normal people would be a combination of anger, bitterness. Ooh. A little to use to use a Lincoln word, a little melancholy, perhaps. You know that would be normal for most people. It, did it take your mind off it as you were researching? And you know, uh,
2: it, yes and no. I mean, you kind of it's like a toggle switch. You kind of oh yeah, like I could use that. Or, oh yeah, that happened to <laughs> me too, Mister Link. But here was something that happened to me early on, and I do think it was mm-hmm. grace. It happened. So this was early on in the beginning of this, you know, terrible years. You can't say honest terribleness because I had so many years, <laughs> oh, that were so awful. So I can't use the Queen's
0: expression, right?
2: Is that that I. down. She exactly. Said, <laughs> honest, for the royal family. Um, exactly. Anyway, I had this moment of grace, and it was really early on. Colin, uh, my ex-husband, had just walked out, and I remember standing there by my car. And I kind of thought of Oprah Winfrey, who I, had, I really didn't know very much about. And I remember thinking to myself, and I shook my hand at the sky, a little bit like Scarlett O'Hara halfway through Gone with the Wind, Vivian Lee. And I said, with God as my witness, I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to make something good out of this, even if I have no idea what. And I returned to that over and over and over. It's like a personal covenant. I didn't have any idea I was going to try and get better. I didn't have an idea what was, what was going to happen in my life. I didn't know how I was going to get through the next day, much less, you know, the next month. But I just knew that, and I kept coming back to that over and over and over again. And honestly, it saved me. That was really important. I think it was Grace. I don't think it was Nancy.
1: Right. But it was really powerful. No, I mean, that is so big, and I want to get to these five leaders, but you mentioned bitterness. When I think of some great leaders, obviously Lincoln is one, Churchill was another. Mm. They knew how to deal with botanist. I mean with Churchill, I mean he had some challenges with Baldwin and obviously Neville Chamberlain he disagreed with what he didn't. I, I remember there was one instance when I guess Clement Attlee is you know won the 45 election, and Churchill's thinking, "Hey, I, I saved Britain. This is the thanks I get. Thank <laughs> yeah. you so much. And so then one of his buddies started laying into Clement Attlee, and Churchill basically said, "Don't you dare do that." The people voted for him. So he disagreed with his policies, but he wasn't bitter.
0: Yeah. And
1: so I think of a Lincoln or a Churchill, I mean, they have many attributes, but the ability to not be bitter and to tackle the issues of the day, yep. that seems to be a number of hallmarks of great leaders.
2: Could not agree more. Lincoln says at one point in the war one of the naders of the Union Army's fortunes, he says, What I traffic in is too vast for malice.
1: Right. And mm-hmm. over and
2: over, you know, that wow. you just, that we're not, you know, Martin Luther King. I mean, there's so many great leaders who understand this. You just can't, you got to close the, that bitterness, vitriolic eye for an eye door most of the time, because it won't take you and the people that you influence because Churchill still exerted enormous influence, right. In Absolutely. 45, it won't take them 95% of the time. It takes them nowhere good. Maybe 99% of the time, mm-hmm. so the emotional awareness and discipline for it, to do that, I think, is one of the pillars of people who make themselves into great leaders.
1: Absolutely. So one final comment before talking about the five, and then we're going to focus on Shackleton. What I love about what you do, because you know, I'm not a historian, I, I love history, but definitely not a historian, but when I read history, whether it's Lincoln, uh, Churchill, even My dad loved English history, so I was Uh sort of brought up on Wellington and Nelson as Uh you know, even though I'm Australian as, you know, Anglophiles I guess are. And so when I read about them, you know, having gone to Harvard Business School and in my own little way, sort of write and think about leadership, I read about people in history and think, you know, what are the key leadership attributes? What are the lessons today, which I feel like that's the lens you look at because you teach Mm -hmm. at the Harvard Business School. And historians, they're wonderful at what they do, but they don't always look at it through an, a leadership lens, because that's no. not what they're there for. They're there to write a history, and that's uh-huh. fine. But you look at it through a different lens, which I think is amazing. So let's talk about these five, because, I mean, they're very different. I mean, Shackleton, yeah. Lincoln, yeah. Douglas, Bonhoff. I mean, I'd heard of them, I must confess, Rachel Carson, a book I hadn't. But uh-huh. I mean, her story is equally amazing. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So you know, sort of a race against time to write yeah. *Silent Spring* as she was going through cancer. Talk. There are so many leaders, but why these five? Because. <laughs> It's an interesting selection.
0: And I'm going to jump in for just a second to say these five leaders are profiled in Forest and Crisis. So here's the book that we're talking about. Just want to make sure the Nancy's Paperback book, and hardback, audio
1: right. and ebook. There you go.
0: So the five leaders that Warwick is speaking of are masterfully profiled in this book. Well done. Sorry. Gary. Yes.
1: Thank
2: you, Gary. I love you. Wow. So, you know, it's interesting. Churchill, by the way, was on the cutting room floor. And there were a number of people that didn't make the book that were close. Because I probably had 12 and ended up mm-hmm. as five. The book was like, I we originally going to write about seven. And then it was that was like, it was year 10. And I thought, God, I'm <laughs> never going to finish. So it got, it got a little bit of five. I'm a slow writer. I'm just a slow writer. I'm a careful writer. And I think I'm a better writer for being a careful writer in terms of reader comprehension and ease. Mm-hmm. But in any event, I think they chose me, Mark. I think they chose me. There was something early on about reading just a little bit, for example, of Carson's story who about whom I knew almost nothing. Rachel Carson, the woman who more than any other single individual, just for listeners that don't know her story, really founded the modern environmental movement with a just an extraordinary book, a path-breaking book, a revolution-making book she published in 1962 called Silent Spring while she was battling metastasizing breast cancer. And so it was a race against time. But I didn't know much about her. I remember my mother reading the book when I was a little girl and loving it, but I just read a little bit. I thought, talk about unexpected calamity, right? Talk about the world caving in around you. Talk about someone who's gonna access her courage and resilience and mission, you know, purposeful, like worthy mission muscles. And I just, would something I knew, I just knew. Mm -hmm. And so these people chose me and it wasn't, the hard part was making it only five, But, you know, I needed to publish the book before I died. So (laughs) I could have been at this for 20 years. As it was, it was 15. So that's really what happened. I got to know each of them incredibly well. And just one last thing, because I care so much about these people, I know them. I mean, Mr. Lincoln will always be Mr. Lincoln, not Abe. (laughs) Not Abraham. Rachel will always be Rachel. Dietrich is all Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think about them all the time because I spent a couple of years with each of them. I mean, there was a moment in. Whenever I'm in, I'm at the edge of the cliff, or however big the fall is, I think of them, and I I take sustenance, or I take a lesson for myself from one of these people. So they've made a major impact on my life.
1: That's amazing. So I want to focus a bit on Ernest Shackleton because I'd heard of him and the whole polar exploration race. I know you talk about this, but for modern listeners, they may not be aware. In the early 1900s, the whole polar race was a bit like, I guess, the space race in the 60s. And I guess it was an era of king and country and glory and Britain, Norway, and I guess, US and some other folks. It was pre-World War One, a very different era. So talk a bit about Ernest Shackleton and, and who he was and kind of what made him tick. I know the The real story begins in 1914, but there's sort of a backdrop to who he was and Scott and that whole kind of deal.
2: So he was Irish born, born in 1874, and his father wanted him to be a doctor, but from a young age, he loved the sea, even though he was born in County Kildare, north of Dublin. And he spent some time as a ship's boy and then as an officer in the Merchant Marine. And then he gets a chance right after the turn of the century. This is the 1800s into the 1900s to join what, as you were saying, work was one of the ships from Britain racing south against ships from other countries, teams from other countries, trying in what is called the heroic age of Antarctic exploration or polar exploration to be the first team to discover the South Pole for their country. That's why it's a lot like the Space Race, who will get to the moon first, who will get the ship up for the manned spacecraft up first. And he does this, he tries this twice, two different efforts in the first 10 years of the 20th century. Learns a lot from a bad captain in the first expedition, a lot from a failed expedition that he captains between 1907 and 1909, and then comes home short of the pole, doesn't get to the pole in either, in either expedition, and then comes home and the pole was actually discovered in 1911 by a Norwegian named Roald Amundsen in what today is still an unequaled feat of ex, really a polar exploration on either end of the earth, mm-hmm. a astounding story of really courageous leadership and very, you know, smart decision-making and great bravery and team cohesion. And after the Poles discovered Shackleton, who motivated, this is important, motivated by fame, you know, a real narcissistic drive to do this for God, king and country, mm-hmm. and be the man, the man who does it, gets a new idea. He's like, well, the poll has gone, darn it didn't get that, I need to do another first. And he gets this idea beginning in 19, I think it's really as early as late 1912, that he'll be the first to lead an expedition that will sled across the entire Antarctic continent from one Mm -hmm. end, from the South American end to the Australian end and cross literally the magnetic pole in the process, Mm -hmm. collect scientific samples, but be the first and they'll do it for Britain. And that is the beginnings of this extraordinary story story of failed mission on the one hand, but a story of a different kind of even more important success that begins in 1914.
1: I'm curious about his motivation. I mean, just, you know, reading your book, I mean, he starts out, what, like at age 12 or something, and by, well, 16, I guess it is, and then by his early 20s, he's has his captain's mast or whatever it's called. I mean, he's really an adventurer, But the thing with Robert Falcon Scott, who is you know, very sort of prominent and famous and, you know, a Royal Geographic Society, some obviously it failed, but for some reason, I don't know why, Scott decides to, you know, blame everything yeah. on Shackleton, which would seem like unfair, grossly unfair, but that seemed to be, I mean, did you feel, was that a bit of a turning point or like a motivation? It's like this axe to grind or... I'm going to prove them wrong. Or What part did that lay in his whole motivation, do you think, the Scott episode?
2: It's a great question. So just for our listeners, Robert Falcon Scott, this well-known naval commander, was the captain of Sha- the first expedition, the head of the first expedition that Shackleton was on in the first five years of the 20th century. It fails miserably. The men don't get along, Shackleton and Scott particularly, like oil and water. And the men almost die on the way home. They don't get very far. And as far as they get, they almost die, trudging back to base camp. And when they get back to England, Scott publishes a memoir and a book about the, the expedition and the scathing, just scathing indictment of Shackleton. So uh, Shackleton is just beyond angry. He doesn't respond publicly, but I think a great deal of what motivated him to try and do it again on his own terms, was partly anger about what Scott had said, but even more important, this is important, what he had learned about bad leadership mm. from Scott. So I really an interesting lesson that I that several of the people in my book my, these as my editor said the Fantastic Five learn is <laughs> you can educate yourself about how to lead well by actually learning what doesn't work by people who are actually really lousy at leading and there are plenty of those people and their textbooks too, so to speak. And so Shackleton, I think part of his leadership is actually formed out of his reaction to all the things he sees Scott doing wrong. And that's a very important influence on all the expeditions he will have after that, after that one with Scott.
1: I mean, that is fascinating. It's such a great point for listeners to understand is, observing poor leadership can teach you a lot and can help you understand, okay, when it's my turn, I'm going to do it differently. And, you know, obviously, Scott found his demise. And uh, was it when was it like 1911, 12, somewhere in there? When I don't know if that was poor planning, poor leadership, he Got to the South Pole, finding that you know, rolled a, a month and had beat him anyway, and then he dies on the way back. But uh, I don't know. I mean, do you have a, a view on that? It was just just another example of poor planning and so know, leadership, I, I, the ultimate failure. He lost his it life. Was.
2: He lost his life and all his crewmate, all his all the teammates of the polar team that had gone the team for the pole that had gone with him. I do, and in fact, it was that reading so carefully about that expedition. It was a race in 1911 for your listeners between. Scott's team from Britain and Amundsen's team from Norway both men were actually starting from points not that distant on the Australian side of the continent racing south and Amundsen's team is just over and over by every metric such a success and Scott's expedition is a terrible failure ending in the most, you know, most important loss of all, which is the lives of all the men that went to the pole with him. my work is incredibly influenced by a a much greater scholar of polar exploration, a guy named Roland Huntford at the university of Cambridge, the world's foremost Mm -hmm. expert on the subject. And Mm -hmm. there's just no question in my mind, I think, or in, in his mind, in many, many scholars minds that it was insecurity. It was poor planning. It was the inability that comes out of insecurity not to make tough decisions that all good leaders have to make, that ultimately, it was the inability to say no to some of his men. It was flying by the seat of his pants, improvisation can be important, but this was really uncalled for improvisation, that killed Scott and his men. So yes, the blame rests squarely at the feet of Robert Falcon Scott and his poor leaders.
1: And you compare that with the as you write you know, maybe it was a Norwegian thing, but just the planning, using cross-country skis and sled dogs, which is probably more of a use for that in Norway than Britain. I think you write that he actually was ahead of schedule. I mean, just something ridiculous. You know.
2: So, but this Amundsen story is an extraordinary one of courageous leadership, careful planning, team cohesion. A couple of things to keep in mind, just to seal this for you. The men, the Amundsen team make their way to the pole and back to base camp two weeks early. So that's how Mm -hmm. fast they're traveling. No one has ever come close to equaling this kind of feat with sled dogs Mm -hmm. and loaded sleds that are getting lighter as they go. Secondly, the men gained weight on their way to the polar plateau to the pole and back, right? Because they were so well supplied. And third, they had so many supplies coming home that as they got within a few days, sled ride from base camp, they threw, all kinds of things, kerosene, other supplies out to lighten their load. Some of those supplies were found 50 years later. Wow. This is an astounding story of good leadership. Wow! There's a wonderful book for your listeners that are getting hooked here called The Last Place on Earth by Roland Huntford that you will not be able to put down. You won't even look at Netflix for three days while you read (laughs) it.
1: That is great. So... Let's talk about the 1914 expedition, and one of the things that fascinated me was the way he recruited his crew. Uh, (laughs) I mean, there's a lot for modern leaders to understand. So tell the listeners a bit about his recruiting methods, which still to this day, people don't tend to use. Business school professors such as yourself will tell leaders this is how you need to recruit, and they'll say thank you and ignore you, or ignore most People, but right. but I digress. So talk about his no, recruiting no, no. Me- mechanisms.
2: Well, so they they were unusual there, but they're very relevant to turbulent times, which you might say we we just have a wee little bit of here in the <laughs> yeah, just a smash. yeah.
1: <laughs> and
2: the way I would I would characterize what he did was to hire for attitude, and then you know kind of tweak skill, you know, develop, do some nurturing of certain skills, but hire for attitude. So Shackleton, who incidentally, my friends had 5,000 applicants for about 27 spaces on his expedition team, he would ask everyone that came into his office in London to do a kind of what today we call like a short audition, sing a song, do a dance, let's have a little play acting here. And the idea that he was looking for was a kind of, you know, healthy, pragmatic optimism. Not, you know, sugarcoating it, right? You're going to the the, the South Pole. It's dangerous. The stakes are always life and death. So it's not sugarcoating. It's not, you know, all is well when all is not well. But it's a pragmatic kind of optimism and can-do attitude. It is rumored, we don't really, we can't really corroborate this, but it makes a good story, that he placed an ad in the London Times that read something like this, men wanted for hazardous journey, long days, you know, long nights, cold days, danger all around, you know, safe return, uncertain, honor and glory in case of success. So, you know, I mean, it's not really your typical monster.com, you know, (laughs) Craigslist kind of ad, but what he's doing there is literally trying to self-select, attract people who are ready for that kind of environment and who not only can get by, but in a sense, thrive or attracted to it. And
1: uh, absolutely. As, so
2: that's what he does. And I'll tell you one last comment work I know this case, this story, I, I thought I knew it well, when I wrote the Harvard <laughs> business School case then I spent a year researching it. Now I feel like I know it like, you know, kind of the, the age bots on my hands. And <laughs> so I know it really well. And there's not a time that I teach this case that I don't think, that his hiring of these particular men with this particular set of attitudinal characteristics was so important. Not that I mean Shackleton's leadership mattered a great deal. Yeah. But he had the right material.
1: Absolutely. And, and it's Absolutely.
2: incredibly important.
1: Yeah, as you say, hire for attitude, train for skill, which is so important, but so few leaders, even to this day, yeah. do that. They hire for qualifications and I love the categories that you write, that he had these three categories, mad, hopeless, impossible. <laughs> I just, obviously it's the possible. I just, he had a sense right, of right. humor, which I find very uh, endearing. So talk about, so it's 1914. And I love as you write that the day that Britain declares war on Germany, he sets, uh, we gets the approval from King George V. I mean, just an amazing concurrence of events. So he sets forth, he goes to Argentina, and then he reaches South Georgia Island. So pick up the story from there, he's got his crew. It's like late nineteen fourteen and yeah. he has he has a big decision to make, a momentous decision.
2: Yep. So he and his now twenty-seven men crew and some sled dogs, which they haven't yet trained, and a cat, a stowaway cat named Chippy, <laughs> set sail from South America to their last port of call, which will be an island. Southeast of the tip of South America called South Georgia. There's a whaling station there and it's the last place they can take on supplies and post mail. And to get there in early December, 1914, and the whalers all say to him, they've been out. They say, you know, captain, the waters South of here are just chock-a-block with icebergs. You're going to hit pack ice and you may get in trouble. Really recommend you hole up for a while and hope some of this melts. And Shackleton, who's restless you know, he's chasing fame and he's out to do something that's going to work this time and be the first, isn't really very patient. And so he makes the decision after a relatively short kind of layover in South Georgia that he and his crew are going to go ahead and try and navigate their way through the ice down. Now, they're a little bit south, they're a little bit northwest of where he wants to be, so they're going to be heading southwest, I am mean northeast, they're going to be heading southwest. And that's in December of 1914. And they are, by the third week in January, along the coast of Antarctica, they can see it, it's 80 miles away, it's in sight. Shackleton elects one night, this is the third week of January, he elects one night to say, let's just, instead of tucking in here and unloading, let's just sail a little bit farther along the coast. They're now heading west along the coast. I want to get the right place to make base camp. And in that decision, both the decision to head south anyway, despite the warnings, and then in that tiny little decision to just sail a little bit further along lies the fate of the expedition because one night the ice freezes around, these are huge bergs. freeze around the, the Endurance, which was the name of his ship, and it's locked in an immovable vice. They can't blast themselves out, they can't pick themselves out with shovels and pick axes. They're stuck, they can't motor themselves out with diesel power, they're, they're stuck. And, and then they're, they're, and
1: they're, and they're, they're floating
2: for, aimlessly on the current. And they're stuck
1: you, for a very long time. They're, stuck, they're anyway. stuck, that's
2: January, third week of January, they're stuck for the rest of the month, February, March, April, May, June, July, August. In August, the boat starts getting rammed terribly by mm-hmm. just these broken bergs and it starts to get damaged. It's just like the vice now is crushing the ship. And so Shackleton makes the decision, right, in very early September to abandon ship. He'd been planning for it. He could tell the ship was gonna get there. The, the then, ice was gonna get
1: the By then it was like hundreds of miles away from where he wanted to be because the ice flows are just moving. Yep. And so a lot of things to admire about Shackleton, but I mean, let's look at those two decisions. The decision yeah. to go when everybody said, you know, Don't the go. ice is as bad as we've ever seen it. It flows a f- really far north, and then the decision to not get a little inlet, and he wanted to go to Vassal Bay, or, you know, yeah. the original place. So what motivated that decision? Because I think as you're right, he, he didn't really maybe write this down, but you have to think if he was the leader of the U.S., he realized in hindsight what a colossally bad decision. But what do you think motivated him to make either of those really cataclysmic decisions that was so fateful.
2: So, you know, I've taught this case many, many times now to all kinds of groups around the world. And I think Shackleton was a man in a hurry and that made him reckless. I don't think there's any way he gets a pass here. He made the wrong decision going south. They should have waited. That was the wrong decision. I don't think the second decision, well, let's say a little further along, Was mm-hmm. was of the same order of magnitude right. But that first decision is a big deal. And it places him, you know, if it was a traffic accident, the cop would give him 90% of the blame for the accident. It places him, you know, the, the ship getting stuck and what followed at his feet. And I think he knew that by the way, he never said anything about it, but I, I do think that part of what he was doing in the extraordinary leader that emerges out of this big mistake is partly owning the responsibility for something he realized he was a big, big part of. He was culpable of. And there's
0: an interesting couple of sentences, uh, Nancy, that you wrote in the book that kind of talk about where Shackleton went from there. This is what you write. His consistent ability to face forward was the thing that allowed him to become successful from that failure. Again and again, he refused to become mired in what had already happened, what had not worked, what had been missed, who was to blame for the most recent setback or disappointment. That is a critical piece, not just for what happened to Shackleton, yeah, yeah, but yeah. for our listeners who are trying to bounce back from their own crucibles.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I just marvel at this. You know, there's a, so, you know, there's a passage in Matthew, I think it is where Jesus says, you know, the farmer that constantly looks backwards over his plot, the problems his plow has harvests no crops. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit of the same thing, right? When the stakes are high, and, you know, there's a lot to do in front of you. You just can't keep looking back and, you know, scratching your head and pointing fingers and, you know, miring yourself in bitter accusations. Everything can't be a tribunal of the past going forward. And so this was one of those instances where many to come, right, on the ice, where it's like, okay, this happened. What do we need to learn from it? And then how do we literally turn ourselves around to look at the future and what we're doing next? Absolutely. And he would... That's about self-discipline. So much of what I have learned about how these people did, has to do with self-regulation. And he did, and, and that really helped his men, right? Who, by the way, also made mistakes along the way, but he didn't stop with a tribunal to like, you know, prosecute and then punish someone. We moved forward. We learned from it and we moved forward. Or think of Mandela, think of Nelson Mandela coming in to the, the presidency of the Republic of South Africa after 18 years, talk about a chance to get bitter, and decades of apartheid to get bitter and basically saying yes we're gonna kind of figure out you know a way to reconcile but we're not going to spend the next 10 years punishing all the folks that kept apartheid alive or lincoln with malice toward none Mm -hmm. with charity toward all with firmness in the right as god gives us to see the right so and lincoln's plan for reconstruction still in its infant stages when he was assassinated in april of 1865 was not about tribunals and blame and looking backwards. This point that you're both making work and Gary, is really important about leaders, particularly in crucibles and crisis. And for all the rest of us, we gotta turn our necks and our bodies around mm. and look forward I think, as we live.
1: Absolutely, and I think, I wanna talk about how we move forward, but I think to me there are, I mean, one lesson is even great leaders make colossal mistakes. You know, uh, I mean, Shackleton make mistakes. I'm sure Lincoln, you know, <laughs> he had his challenges. Some people criticize him for moving a bit too slowly on emancipation. And yep. uh, I mean, it was a challenging time. That's a whole nother discussion. It's a very nuanced discussion. You know, Churchill, I think he was on the right side of India, right. but on the wrong side, on, on the wrong side of India, excuse yep. me on the right side, I think, of Israel. And so mm-hmm. there were times in which he made really colossally stupid decisions, yep. as we all do. And so it's easy to look back and say, well, yep, you know, uh, he was a bit bitter about the treatment he had from Scott. He missed being the first one on the South Pole. So he does this. Let's cross the whole of the South Pole. That it's from what you've written. A number of folks said that seems kind of challenging, like uh-huh. risky, maybe <laughs> insane, but you know, we're human. It's like, gosh, you know, king, country, glory. So even great leaders can make mistakes. But I think, and certainly in my own life, as listeners know, with growing up in a large family media business and the whole $2 billion takeover that I launched literally months after I graduated from Harvard Business School. It's like, was I not paying attention? I mean, the education is fantastic, but at least for me, my emotions and my dad dying earlier that year and just there's all sorts of emotions which we don't need to get into here but I talk about another podcast that cloud your judgment. And so I like to think of myself as a reasonably sane, intelligent person, but I look back and think, I mean, how could I have made such a colossally stupid decision? Emotions get in the way we do. But I think where your focus is not so much on what was a clearly a cataclysmically poor decision, it's the miraculous way that he was able to move on. So there's some great attributes of leadership, but I mean, most people don't do this. Most people wallow in bitterness and anger. How did he move on? I mean, what about him enabled him to flip the switch saying, okay, that was, I'm responsible
0: for getting my crew here, but time to move on. So, well, how did he do that? Indeed, how did Ernest Shackleton, completely leave behind the failures of his journey up until this point and move forward with a new journey, with a new mission after this. Stuck in the ice for months, knowing that it was in large part mistakes on his part that got him there. How was he able to take a breath, forget what went before, and focus on a new journey ahead? And that will be what we discuss, what Warwick and Nancy Kane talk about in great detail on the next episode of Beyond the Crucible. We've split this episode up like this into two parts because there is such richness in the details of the story of what Shackleton, after doing some things wrong, what Shackleton did right moving forward to get beyond his crucible. And as an on ramp into what that discussion will be like next week on Beyond the Crucible. Here's some analysis that Nancy Kane offers in her book, Forged in Crisis, in discussing some of the lessons that came from Ernest Shackleton's uh, experience, his failure, and then the way he overcame that failure and moved beyond that crucible. Here's what Nancy writes in her book Shackleton jettisoned one objective to walk across the continent and embraced another to save his crew. This is an important lesson that all leaders operating in great turbulence must learn, how to let go of former goals and embrace new ones, even dramatically different objectives as circumstances demand. Those are the insights that we're going to hear next week on part two of our interview on Beyond the Crucible with Nancy King. So until that time comes, listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. And please remember that your crucible experiences, while very painful, while things that will knock you off the trajectory that you're on, just as they stopped Ernest Shackleton from pursuing his expedition for months stuck in the ice, trying to figure out how to move forward. Those things... While your circumstances will obviously be very different, those emotions and the things that you must do to overcome to move beyond those crucibles are things that are universal. That's what we'll talk about next week. But remember that those crucibles, just as Shackleton discovered, those crucibles are not the end of your story. Those crucibles, in fact, can be, if you learn the lessons of them, if you apply the lessons of them, if you move forward one step at a time, those crucibles moments can become a new chapter in your story and a rewarding chapter in your story, perhaps the most rewarding chapter in your life story, because it leads at the end to a life of significance.